0: Hello and welcome to the Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors.
1: When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon.
0: Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800 657 4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours.
2: Moving Iron. Hello,
0: and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Tone Florida, and he's nice enough to come on and talk about what's happening in the marketplace. Sean, how you doing this morning?
2: Doing pretty good. Looking forward to another uh, fun filled day of excitement.
0: That's what I'm looking forward to. Speaking of excitement, you might hear in the background they're doing some construction upstairs, so it's not my stomach or anything like that making any crazy noises. So <laughs> just bear with us here, folks. So, All right, Sean, start off here. Let's talk about oil for a little bit. Oil was a little engine that couldn't, and uh, they bought, uh, the Biden administration decided they were going to sell, uh, bring out the uh, strategic reserves and promised to buy everything back when they got in the 70s. Not only did it get to the 70s, got to the low 60s three or four times, nothing happened. And now we're looking at oil almost to 100 bucks. I guess, Sean, taking a look at the oil marketplace right now, that's going to be pretty expensive to start refilling that, that strategic reserve now.
2: It's assuming we want to.
0: That's true. Um, good point. Never. Yeah.
2: If if, if if one believes in uh, the whole world's going to be electric cars and when there's no demand for gasoline, then uh, we won't need any. Uh, in fact, th- th- one would argue that what Biden did was sell a good portion of the reserve at the best prices we're ever going to see in the rest of our lifetime. If you believe in that narrative, so maybe those. You know, those that have made those decisions, maybe they don't think they ever want to buy it back. See, the, the problem is, though, um, they had so, – my understanding is they had sort of made a uh, an agreement with Saudi Arabia that when oil got under 70, that we would buy oil back for the Reserve, that we would support the oil market, and we didn't do it. And I think – You know, Saudi Arabia got really upset that we weren't supporting the market. And, you know, the way it was going, we were heading into the 60s and maybe even the 50s, the way it was going. Um, And then they decided they were going to pull production. And they did. And through pulling production and from, you know, demand being what it is, uh, all of a sudden the markets tightened up. And remember, we don't have a whole lot of strategic patrol reserve to sell. Anymore, And we're not selling it that much anymore. So so most of the excess crude that came on the market was selling of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which if we don't have, that means we're really running at a tight market to a deficit. So then you pull back production or really a deficit. So I think it was Saudi Arabia's way of saying, you know, we didn't really appreciate that Um, and we can make oil 100 bucks and, and, and make life a little difficult for you guys. And it appears to me that's what they've done now what happens after this um you know will uh, opec decide you know the prices are high enough where they they gotta let they gotta you know bring the money home um probably you know i don't really think that it's in their best interest to get the market much over 100 because over 100 you start to deal with demand destruction again hurting economies again at a time we have high interest rates and things are fragile I'm not sure they want to kill the golden goose at the same time. I think they wanted to send a message to Biden. You know, they didn't appreciate that. We're still in control of the oil market. And by the way, if for some reason we were to get back down, um, you know, again, maybe you should rethink not supporting the oil market by buying strategic petroleum reserves. That's my best guess. Not that I'm an oil guy or a uh, geopolitical expert, but that's my best guess to what's going on here. So...
0: Well, it seems like it makes a little bit of sense when I mean, you think about it. I mean, they, they had three opportunities to do that, and, and they did nothing. I mean, they could have made, like, history. Like, people would have wrote papers about that, and in some, you know, business school someplace that have been talking about the trade that the U.S. government made. Because it would have been an epic trade. I mean, it would have been – I mean – a The single best trade in in all of trading history, I think, would have been there. Of
2: that that kind of size, yeah, it would have been an incredible trade, but they didn't pull the trigger. And now, you know, now who knows? You know, now all of a sudden something could happen. There could be more geopolitical issues. The economy could rebound. The Fed could, you know, a lot of things could happen That all of a sudden oil's, you know, back up to where it was.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. We kind of talked a little bit about this before we started recording it because I'm just curious as I hear <clears throat> the amount of news that comes out of China right now and especially in a place where so much news is controlled as you look at um, various uh, news outlets and, and what you can see, you can't really necessarily trust what comes out of China. But if you kind of read between the lines a little bit and see what's happening, there, there's some significant economic issues going on in China right now. So if you look at the the overarching... Issues with China. We've had, they've had two or three 2008 style real estate collapses over the last two or three years. You know, and watching that happen, you've had just a, you know, you have a whole demographic now of young people coming in that don't necessarily want to work in the in the manufacturing space as much as they want to work in the, um, you know, computer space, the the engineering, computer engineering space, software engineering space, working on those kind of things. Um, so right now, China's in a bit of a pickle when you start looking at their economy. Some of the parallels that I was thinking about, and it was to to Russia in 1989 and what you saw happen in there. And I guess, Sean, I'd like your opinion on, is there a possibility that we could wake up one day and China just be a complete hole in the ground someplace?
2: It's certainly always possible when you have a command economy, uh, more of a socialistic economy, um, uh, run by essentially an authoritarian. You know, there's really no one that can tell Z no. He'll do whatever right. he wants to do, and maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. Um, their
0: defense so. minister must have told him no <laughs> somewhere along <around> the <laughs> way.
2: So you know, you know, you, usually you know that's a dangerous p- position to be in, and you know, and and their demographics are so um, unfavorable. That unless they were to allow massive immigration into the country, which does not seem like they're doing anytime soon, you know, the only way that they can keep themselves together is they have to massively create increased wealth for the people that remain in their prime consumption years, which are declining. So, so Japan went through this. Japan's you know uh, population cut cut in half, and their economy has stayed flat because they've been able to increase the wealth per per citizen so much that even though the numbers are in half, the economic activity is the same. And that's like a fantastic scenario. Like, you know, Japan, that's a great outcome for Japan, not to have a declining economy with such terrible demographics. So the real question in the long run, meaning like 10 to 20 years, can China do that? Are they able to create that wealth for the three to 500 million people that will remain you know, in the productive phase enough to offset a halving of their population. I don't really know if they will or won't, but that's the big challenge. And what they're going through now is some of those early growing pains of what happens when your demographics start to become lopsided, where you have too many old people consuming less, needing more. And, to, and not enough young people uh, to come up underneath to help support the system. So I don't think we're eminently there. Um, I think, you know, it will take some time if, if we're going to get there. Uh, but certainly if China does not figure out a way to turn this around and, uh, and provide a, um, a better framework of how they're going to deal with this demographic issue, you know, then then what's going on now, you know, you'll see more often and it will accelerate. So, um, I've been saying uh, in uh, my writings and in my speeches that uh, you know, we need to be looking elsewhere for demand for agriculture for commodities. I don't think I think China's sun is set in terms of their them being the go to person for commodity demand. They're still there. They still have needs. But I think you know we need to be looking at places like India. You know for maybe new places that are going to that are up and coming that are going to take the baton and really become the driver for commodity growth energy growth food growth and demand um so to me you know i'm not really looking for anything exciting in the long term from china uh, other than you know just some up back and forth oscillation depending upon their economy depending on their production and um and the geopolitics of the situation so i think anyone looking for china to be the driver for commodities forward in terms of increased demand and higher prices. I, I don't think they're the engine anymore. They had, a, they had a 20 year run, but they simply cannot do it anymore. Uh, demographically. And, and they just need to uh, uh, figure out a way to remain viable in the long run. So,
0: okay. So demographically, as you, as you talk about looking around the world, <laughs> most of the world is in a spot where, with the exception of, like, five countries, U.S. being one, most of, um, <clears throat> most of South America being one of those. Um, I mean, even Mexico, to some extent, is having some demographic issues. But you start looking at, like, where, where is that next place at? Because so much of the world is at a point now where there's, they, their birth rates aren't replacing um, the population they have. So I guess as you look out across the world right now, Sean, where do you see that next, quote-unquote, China to be?
2: Well, the only country that has the population and with the good demographics to really be – to provide the kind of demand, uh, sizable demand to replace what China has been, that I can see is is India. I I don't really see anybody else. I mean right now India is pushing 3.5 to 3.7 trillion GDP. When China crossed that level is when their demand for commodities went through the roof. When we looked at look at Japan, when they were really big buyers of commodities in the late 60s and the 1970s, it's when they crossed about $3.5 trillion GDP that their demand for commodities went through the roof. And now India is now crossing that same threshold, and we're starting to see their demand in many of the markets starting to increase to the point where India is feeling the need to restrict exports. Um, what's interesting is you know, one of the one of the main reasons that India says the reason that they're, they're halting exports is because they have very, very high domestic prices for everything. Meaning everything is just super high and prices are high and inflation is high. Well, why is that? Because the demand domestically for these items is so strong and the supplies that are available are, are apparently are are not enough. Um based upon what they had been doing with exports. So they've decided to keep the supplies home and start working at knocking those prices down. But I think we're reaching a point where India is found itself in a a positive space economically, but realizing that being the exporter to the world of key agricultural items may no longer be in their best interest. And they're starting to figure that maybe – you know, keeping all this supply at home and working on ways to maybe bring some extra supplies in is the better way to go to manage the long-term growth trajectory. Because if if they're going from three and a half trillion to ten trillion or fifteen trillion over the next ten to fifteen years, Casey, you know, I don't see how they're they can support that by being a major exporter of these things. I, I don't see how that's going to happen, and so that. To me, is a the biggest story of this year is a shifting of India away from an exporter to potentially an importer, and um, and potentially a really really big importer, especially if weather problems arise and they have short crops, like it looks like they might have this year. So, that's to me is the price spot. Their demographics are phenomenal. Um, you know, their politics are <laughs> uh, a little chaotic in india but but at least oh, yes. as there, there's some semblance of of um of uh of a free economy of a uh uh capitalistic economy there that they, they do vote and you know i mean it's not a it's not a command economy like it is in russia or like it is in in, in um china you know there there is a a a, a rule by many although modai is a powerful uh leader and, and he and you know he he, he can oftentimes sway people to his thinking, but it's he's definitely not an authoritarian and definitely can't the way their system is structured, he's not able to just do whatever he wants, whenever however he wants. He still has to have a um, democratic um you know majority in his favor to get things done. So so at least they have a system that has the ability to self-correct um and 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 have stupid people get pushed out and have smart people come back in to keep things alive instead of somebody saying it's my way if you don't agree with me i'm getting rid of you that you know that's the that's the classic authoritarian model so it looks to me like to be a really really uh up and comer and and probably the, the biggest economic miracle that's coming is the the ascension of india onto the global economic scene and how that shifts trade flows shifts supply demand Prices, um, and geopolitical influence, because you know India is on the border there with China. You know it's you oh, yes. know, they're, they're, they're they're right there, China. You know I mean Russia. I mean they're right in there. So they have a, they they will have a role to play. The more economically strong they become, so. Right.
0: And they've got Bollywood. You got to think about that too. <laughs> they have Bollywood. Yes. They All do. right. So let's talk about one thing here. So if you're looking at the overall. Region where any is at, and you talk about them kind of backing away from exports, we seen them do that this you know a few times this year um, the last couple of years actually do some of that stuff. when you start looking at the amount of rice that they export, wheat they export sugar they export those kind of things right now, and they, and they shut that off um, you start looking at countries like you know the Southeast Asian countries um into Africa where rice is a big deal um, where's that coming from
2: well. You know, the, the way these things work, if you get a demand-side shock like this, it, it will take time for someone else to find a way to make up the difference, right? So if, um, if uh, India's, uh, you know, 10 to twelve million metric tons of sugar exports is no longer going to be available, someone else needs to produce that. Now, of course, no one else can produce that right now. But over time, given the right price, Um, And incentives and uh, investment in countries who have the ability to produce more rice um, or sugar in the right environment, you know, it will take time. You know, typically these things take approximately, you know, 10 years of high prices and investment and and reallocating resources to get someone else to make up the difference of a major exporter no longer, you know, being able to do so. Um, But it can be done. It will be done. Uh, but the market needs. But the, the the reason you have commodity inflationary periods that last between twelve and fifteen years is because that's how long it typically takes high prices and investment to eventually find new ways, new supplies to make up for the demand that the the old system was not able to come up with. And then once we figure that out, then you have a bear market. Then you have a period of, of, a, of extended period of low prices, oversupply. As the market then then kind of reassimilates into this, you know, newfound um, balance that they've created. Right now we're only in year three of a typical, you know, twelve to fifteen year commodity inflationary cycle. So, you know, we, we have a long way to go before you know we're gonna find anyone replacing India's lost exports. And of course, if they become imports, you know, you would have to add that on to what the world would need to create at a time that where the volatility will continue to challenge production of just about everything, uh, throughout the world. So.
0: All right. One more, one more quick topic here. And we'll, we'll shut it down here for this one. So you had the first, uh, grain cargo leave the Ukrainian port under the new new deal, um, since the grain deal ended, right? Um, your thoughts on that, Sean? What, what's that mean to the market, and does the market really care?
2: Well, you know, I mean, uh, the, the the real key will be, you know, is it just a few ships that were trapped in Ukraine that have been left to leave with cargo, um, or are they going to actually be able to get a shipping lane really going on a daily basis, like they like the grain deal had had caused? Mm-hmm. Um, can they do that? Will Russia allow them to do that? The answer is we don't really know, other than they have been so far successful in getting some ships that were uh, trapped in Ukraine to get out. Um, obviously, any any movement of grain out of Ukraine um, provides extra supply. It doesn't mean the production in Ukraine is, is going to improve. It doesn't mean that the prices in Ukraine are, are attractive for growing production again. But on, on the margin psychologically, the market feels that the ending of the grain deal there's still a, somewhat of a stopcock valve that's been open that allows some grain to go out. It just keeps the bear the bearish tone intact for now. You know, it doesn't really necessarily make the market more bearish at current prices, but it certainly doesn't endear any reason for them to back off the pedal of being bearish, and it certainly doesn't bring any bullish buyers to want to take out offers and move the market higher if we're seeing some evidence that maybe uh, Ukraine is able to, you know, get some grain out on their own without, uh, without Russia being on board. Time will tell whether that's true or not. And all it will take is, you know, Russia bombing one of these ships coming out of the port and, and, and and then it's cut off again. But for right now, the, the, um, the image of some grain leaving Ukraine um, it keeps the bears uh, steadfast in their, in their view that, that there's no reason to get bullish wheat anytime soon. Gotcha.
0: Okay. All right, Sean, good stuff as usual. Folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what it is you're doing over to Hackett Financial. What's the best way to do that?
2: Um, we have a Twitter page at Faradx11. We have our website at hackettadvisors.com. H-A-C-K-E-T-T, We put out some interviews on there. Occasionally we make a few uh, comments. Recently putting out a a Twitter uh, piece on um, drought in Russia, Ukraine, uh, during the planting stage here that could create one of the worst uh, starts to the uh, winter wheat crop there in quite a few years. And so, so, you know, we're not habitual posters, but we do try to provide enough information for people to stay informed with what we're doing, how we're doing it, to see if we could be of value to them.
0: Right on, Sean. I think you give him pretty good value based on the stuff you send me. I think everybody that wants to get that newsletter should take a hard look at what Sean's doing because there's some stuff in there that uh, I've I've never heard before, and uh, I've heard it before uh, with Sean, and I've heard it in other places. So uh, his news is is uh, contrarian, and it's also um, seems to be the, the first to the first to the So Sean, I can commend you on what you've been able to put together there on that newsletter.
2: I appreciate that Casey. It's uh it's a lot of hard work. Don't get everything right, but uh, do my best to try to get the big, big ideas, mostly right. And so far so good. And hopefully, you know, that, you know, that can be uh, maintained because it's uh it's our mission to help farmers and producers and those in agriculture bring more money home because it's a, it's a tough environment out there and every dollar matters. So yep,
0: it absolutely does. And I can barely read. So Sean, Sean's doing, doing a good job keeping, keeping the simple for guys like me to read it. So Keep keep doing it, Sean. Keep banging, buddy. We'll do. All right. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast and check out the video version over on the YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Go to LinkedIn um, at Moving Iron Podcast as well. Go to Moving Iron LLC to get everything Moving Iron related and uh, see what's happening there. So, with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Sean Hackett. Let's move some iron, folks.
2: You'll find us here Moving higher